0: In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Good morning, everyone. So wonderful to see all of you here. Hello to our online uh, community. Uh, Welcome here. We love you. Um, It's so great to be gathered. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. I have to say, uh, it isn't often that I think to myself, I don't really want to get up and preach. And I do, but I wasn't quite ready. I was enjoying that time of worship together, listening to your voices and the spirit in the room. And I believe the spirit was speaking. And I think he was addressing some of you about some things that are keeping you captive. So may you be released in that. May you be blessed. Uh, Before I get to the sermon. I um, have the privilege of getting to invite my friend up onto the stage, who wants to share a little something. Come up, Leslie. Yeah. Leslie was at the Soul Care Conference, and she'd like to say a few uh, words. So I think that's working. Hello. There it is.
1: Yes, it is. Good
0: morning, church. Just hold it just a little bit closer to your chin. There you go. No, you're good. That's perfect.
1: Good morning, church, and online church. Um, before I go f- any further, I would like to say hello to my mom in Sherwood Park, Alberta, that is live streaming right now. Mm-hmm. Hi, mom. Hi, mom. This is my old bad arm. All right. For those who don't, oh, I did it again. For those who do not know me, my name is Leslie. I would like to tell you what the bursary for the Soul Care Conference meant to me. Friday, March 3rd in the evening, I went to the healing and worship service. hold this for you? Let me hold this. All right, better. Mm-hmm. I asked the Lord to heal my extremely painful shoulder, not to walk, but to heal my shoulder. It happened so quickly I jumped and thanked Jesus immediately. I would like to thank all the people that give monies to the bursary fund. It enabled me to be completely and wholly healed and I'm off the pain medication, which has got multiple, multiple side effects. <laughs> From the bottom of my heart, God bless you, church family, because I was definitely blessed. Thank you. <laughs> I need help, Thank you. You're
0: welcome. Wonderful. The stories keep coming of uh, people that have been blessed and ministered to uh, by our time at the conference. Jesus was uh, very specially with us, and uh, it was a wonderful time, and we're so thrilled, Leslie, uh, to have uh, you here and seeing what God's doing in your life. It's really, really wonderful. Excellent. All right. Uh, Years and years ago, my sister and I were uh, at a um, bike repair shop in our hometown, and we're getting our bikes fixed, our bicycles fixed, and uh, we, would, we were poised to go to Youth of the Mission YWAM. I was returning for a second uh, course there, and, and my sister was as well. And we were going to study the scriptures together uh, with, a, with a group of people. We were going to go deeper in our relationship with Jesus, and we were really excited about it. And got into a conversation with the, the owner's son, the owner of the store's son and uh, as we were sharing what we were going to do it became evident that this person identified as a as a christian of some stripe some kind but as the conversation went on it got a little bit weird because although he wasn't he was trying his best to be as kind as he could uh, probably because we were paying for services in his store. Um, But he was trying to be as kind as he could. But he essentially communicated to us, like, that's great what you're going to do, but, you know, uh, we we would never be able to have fellowship together. Uh, Like, I could never sit down and and have a meal uh, with you and your sister. And um, and that kind of came out after a while, we began to kind of understand a little bit more um, that he came from a specific Christian group, a specific stripe, a specific church or denomination or so on, a specific community that had this very um, very uh, rigid idea that they had the truth and that all other Christians were good, but they didn't really have all of the truth, that they were the one true church and everybody else, uh, we, we shouldn't really have anything to do with them in case their theology pollutes us. And, and as a young person, as a young Christian, I thought this was really weird Uh, and I didn't really get this at all, but I'm sure if we were to talk together for any length of time, probably some of us would be able to identify some groups, maybe some churches, maybe some denominations that think a little bit that way. Uh, Years before that, when I was at high school, there was a girl at our high school who didn't have a TV at home, and it wasn't because of poverty or anything like that, but she didn't have a TV. And uh, although there's nothing wrong with that, and in fact, probably most of us could do with a little less TV in our lives, as a teenager, I thought, well, that's weird. Uh, n- no TV in your house. What, what do you do in the evenings? <laughs> and, uh, and so anyway, uh, I, it became apparent that, again, she was part of a Christian group for whom they had so many different rules and regulations, and one of them was that you're not allowed to watch TV. And as a teenager, I thought this was, again, really, really weird. And I tell you these two stories because we're going to be jumping into the Gospel of Mark again. And um, these provide a little bit of context and background to this idea of people for whom their religion, their faith, uh, is actually uh, based around a lot of law and rules, and for whom relationship with others then uh, is difficult, and they need to create a barrier because there's this kind of sense that we might get polluted by other people. So if, you're, um, if you like to open your Bible in front of you, you want to open to Mark 7, And we're going to read uh, verses 1 to 23. Now, when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders." And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there were also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, that's Jesus, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you, hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must surely die. But you say that if anyone... Uh, tells father or mother, whatever support you might have had from me is Corbin, that is an offering to God, then you no longer permit doing anything for a father or mother, thus making void the word of God through your tradition that you have handed on. And you do many things like this. Then he called the crowd again to him and said, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. When he'd left the crowd and entered the house, his disciple asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then do you also fail to understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile, since it enters not the heart, but the stomach? and goes out into the sewer. Thus he declared all foods clean. And then he said, it is what comes out of a person that defiles, for it is from within the human heart that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these things come from within a person and they defile. God's word to us today. So I don't know if you noticed but but one of the things Mark is trying to do here, uh, one of the things that he's doing as he's telling the stories of Jesus is that he's explaining some things that were specific and unique to Jewish culture. So I don't know if you noticed but verse 3 and 4 were actually bracketed out uh, in my Bible anyway, maybe in your Bible you're following, on. they're actually bracketed out. So it's like he's telling this story of what's happening, and then he just steps aside and goes into the brackets, the parentheses, and just explains something. Or, oh, oh, by the way, since we're talking about it, the Jews, just so you know, you know they, don't, they don't eat without washing their hands first, and they also, they, you know, if they get meat from the marketplace, they're going to wash it before they eat it, and they do this with bronze kettles and, uh, and pots and, and so on. So he's explaining something to them. And that is one of the main reasons that scholars believe that Mark was writing to a Gentile audience. You don't get that in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's writing predominantly to Jewish people. He doesn't need to explain to them things that they know about themselves. But if he's writing to a Gentile audience who have no idea about Jewish culture and scruples and rules and laws and regulations, that's why he's explaining it to them. We've talked about how the crowds gathered during Jesus' ministry time in and around Galilee. The more miracles he performed, the more people he healed, the more demons he drove out, the more the people followed him. Of course they did. These were people who were living under foreign occupation with a foreign army marching through their land. This is a people who were probably living with a certain amount of disillusionment and doubt. We're supposed to be the people of God. Yahweh, the creator of all things, the one true God, promised us a land flowing with milk and honey and blessings and goodness and a future, a grand future. And here we are living in a place where there's Roman soldiers marching through our land and we have to be careful. And we're paying heavy taxes to Caesar in Rome. And even some of our local rulers are essentially in bed with Rome. And some of our people collect taxes for the Roman machine. What's going on? Imagine they would live under a great deal of disillusionment and probably question the goodness of God. Why is God allowing this to happen? So along comes a Messiah-type figure, a miracle worker, a rabbi who teaches with authority unlike the others. Remember that from the synagogue? And of course, this is the most exciting thing in the villages. Of course, they're going to begin to follow him around. But it wasn't only the crowds of villagers that would follow him. Do you remember we talked a few weeks ago about um, the, the, the religious leaders that went up to Galilee? Jerusalem, the mother church, the, the, the seat of Judaism, sent detachments of religious leaders up to Galilee to see what all the fuss was about. Who is this Jesus and what's he teaching and what's he doing? And is he riling up the crowds and, and, and is he, is he upset in the delicate balance we have going on with Rome because we want to keep that so they don't you know, uh, tax us more or, or treat us worse or so on? What's he doing exactly? Is he upsetting our authority? Is there an issue up here? Well, the Pharisees, a subgroup of Jewish leaders, were, were also following him around and these people were obsessed with the law. A group who believed that the curses of the book of Deuteronomy had fallen upon Israel because Israel had had moved to idolatry, had broken the law, and had broken covenant. And they were right. That largely is why God eventually said enough is enough. And they were living under the curses of Deuteronomy. They were right about that. But their solution was, if only we can keep the law absolutely perfectly and prove to God we can keep the law, and keep our side of the covenant, then God would turn those, blessi- those curses rather into blessings, and part of that would be to drive out the Romans and give us a Davidic king who would come and sit on the throne forever and rule us. That was their hope. The trouble is they become so obsessed with law-keeping that they created laws upon laws upon laws upon laws, a complex set of regulations, which acted like a hedge around the law, because if people stick with these regulations, they won't even get near the major laws to break them. And so they created this whole long system of rules. And um, in the passage, I don't know if you noticed, but, but the Pharisees say to Jesus, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders? Didn't say, why, didn't, why don't your disciples live according to the law of Moses? He said, the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders are these extra laws that you don't find in the law of Moses, you don't find in the Old Testament, but they've been created by the Pharisees as a way to hedge the law in. Regulation upon regulation. And most of it was to do with ritual purity. That washing the hands thing, by the way, let's not be modern people who read back into the scripture our own preoccupations and understanding of, of germs and so on. It was nothing to do with hygiene, it was everything to do with ritual purity and religious purity. That's what it was about. And so they had this complex system, and it was oral tradition. That means it was passed on orally. It was taught by the leaders, sometimes called the scribes in the Old Testament, and they would teach it orally to the people. Eventually, it was codified and written down, but that would be a couple hundred years after Jesus, and it's called the Mishnah. You may have heard of that, the Jewish Mishnah. And eventually it was codified. But at the time of Jesus, it was just orally passed on. And so these teachers of the law, authoritative teachers who had been given their authority from Jerusalem, the seat of power, would teach these tradition of the, uh, the traditions of the elders and these laws. And uh, another thing they sort of understood uh, was like um, with the ritual purity thing, it was almost like sin or, or a breaking of the law could kind of be caught like a germ, so if I have a really bad cold and I sneeze on you, there's a chance you might get my cold. Well, they understood as well. If, if we hang around with people who are ritually unpure Gentiles, and if we don't wash this meat because it may have been handed, handled by a Gentile or a pagan worshiper or something like that, if, if, if we're not careful, we may catch the sin. We may catch the ritual impurity. And so that was partly what they believed, and we'll come back to that. So back to our story the Pharisees are following Jesus around and they're noticing things and they don't like what they're seeing. And so they, just say, they say to him, why don't your disciples keep the tradition of the elders? Why don't they do what everybody else does? Because, you know, if only, and there's kind of writings from the Pharisees and beliefs from the Pharisees that they, some of them believe, if all of Israel, if everyone in Israel could just keep the law perfectly for one day, we believe Yahweh would bless us. And so they were obsessed about it. Why don't they keep the tradition of the elders? And Jesus' response is pretty frank. He doesn't mince his words. It's a little stinging. He says, you absolute hypocrites, absolute hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied about people like you. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. Your, your, your worship is in vain teaching human precepts as though they're doctrines. Jesus is saying you are giving God lip service. You're saying all the right stuff, but I know it's not authentic. It doesn't come from your heart. Your worship is in vain. You teach human precepts as though they're doctrines. What they're saying is God gave the law of Moses, but he didn't give all this oral tradition stuff. That's your stuff. And you're claiming that your stuff is my stuff. I didn't teach that. I never gave that. That was never given to Moses. And then Jesus goes a step further and he says, and not only is all this stuff here not my stuff, but worse, some of this stuff actually contradicts my stuff. And some of you use your oral traditions as legal loopholes to get out of keeping the laws that God has laid down for you. Like how stupid. (laughs) You're so obsessed with not breaking the law but actually, you, you use all these legal things that you have over here to, to, to actually get around and get away from having to keep the law, and you think that's okay. And then he gives an example. You say that if anyone tells father or mother, whatever support you might have had from me is Corbin, that is an offering to God, then you no longer permit... Any doing anything for a father or mother, thus making void the word of God through your tradition that you've handed on, and you do many things like this. What is he talking about? What is Corban? Corban was like a a vow that you could speak. It was a dedication formula. And so what you could do is you could make this vow, make this verbal dedication formula over your, your money and possessions and goods as a way of dedicating it to God in the temple. And it seemed like a really pious thing to do. Ooh, this guy's really spiritual. Like, like he, he's going to give all of his stuff to God. Wow, what a spiritual thing to do. It's a pretty pious thing. All I have, I put at the Lord's disposal, except it was a dedication spoken. It was a vow spoken, not necessarily an action fulfilled. It may have been, but not necessarily. It was uh, an intention, but it doesn't mean they went through with it. It was a verbal commitment, but not an actual action on their behalf. In the first century, for aging parents, there was no CPP, right? There was no Canada pension plan, Israel pension plan. Uh, there were no RRSPs. Uh, there, was, there was no you know, social things uh, as a way to, to care for you. In, this, in the same way that we have today. And, and so for aging parents, unless you were really, really, really wealthy, you relied on your children to take care of you. And so you'd move into their home eventually, and they would care for you, and they would, uh, they would supply your needs and so on, just like they had for, for, for you as a, uh, when you were children. And that was what they did. And so what Jesus is saying in the example is saying The people are saying to aging parents, I can't actually support you financially with my goods or with my money because all of my money is Corbin. It's all dedicated to God. It's all dedicated to the temple. According to the tradition of the elders, that was a legitimate thing to do. But according to Jesus, that was a horrible thing to do. Don't do that. You hypocrites. The Ten Commandments actually state that you should honor your father and your mother. There's other things written in the actual law of God that talks about care for parents. And what you're doing is you're using the tradition of the elders as a loophole to get out of caring for your parents, and instead just to make yourself look to everybody else like you're such a pious individual, giving the money to the temple. I don't want your money. You break those commands by using a legal loophole, and you do many things like this, says Jesus. You're concerned that my disciples aren't washing their hands, and you're not caring for your own parents because you care more about how you look. Going back to what I said earlier, that you can catch sin and become unclean by touching things that are unclean. Uh, they will wash their hands because you know inadvertently they may um, touch somebody who is sinful. The meats may have been handled in the marketplace. Jesus not only comes against this by words, but think about it, throughout his life, he would eat with sinners. He would touch lepers, the unclean of the unclean, right? He would spend time uh, with all kinds of people interacting with Samaritans and so on. The Pharisees had a hard time with it. They didn't like him doing that. And Jesus, quite frankly, didn't care. Legal religiosity over loving your neighbor, keeping rules and regulations over dignifying humanity. That's not what I ever taught. It's not what God ever taught. And Jesus is is angry at them. And then he spends some time saying what truly defiles, what actually defiles. He said, listen to me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside of a person that by going in can actually defile, but the things that come out are what defile. All of this, you must do this, you must do that, you mustn't touch this, you can't eat that. Yeah, there's certain Old Testament laws specifically laid out for some of those things, but they were very specific and they were for a a given time and so on. But most of what you're doing has been developed by human tradition. It isn't what you eat that defiles you. stains you with sin. It isn't by touching someone that you can actually become defiled. Later on in the New Testament, Peter's going to have a vision of unclean animals coming down on a sheet, and he's going to be told to get up and eat. And that actually has more to do with the gospel going to the Gentiles, but it begins a trajectory of understanding. And so the apostle Paul later on is going to say, "Um, don't worry about going to somebody's house, and if they put meat in front of you, just eat it. Don't worry if it's been sacrificed to an idol. Don't worry about going into the marketplace and buying some food that may have been used in pagan worship. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Don't worry about that stuff. He's more concerned about relationship. He says, the stuff that you eat, quite frankly, will go back out of the body. It's actually what comes out of the human heart that defiles, because food goes in. It, does, it goes into the stomach. It doesn't go into the heart, the control center of the human personality. And eventually it goes into the digestive system, and out it goes. But by focusing on outward purity, they're avoiding the much deeper challenge of the gospel, which is the challenge to the human heart. That's what matters. For it is from within In the human heart, that evil intentions come, and then he lists all of those various things. All these evil things come from within, and they are what defile a person. These are the things that the gospel needs to address. These are the stains on humanity. God actually wants to redeem you from your fallenness and the enemy's traps and temptations and influence He wants to set the captives free. He wants us to open our hearts and let him come in and and actually free us and forgive us and heal us and refine us and challenge us and make us right. Years and years and years. And this isn't just novel with Jesus and the New Testament. Years before Jesus in the book of Ezekiel, God said this through the prophet, a new heart I will give you and a new spirit I'll put within you. This is New Testament, but it was in the old. And I'll remove from the body the heart of stone and give you instead a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. So the Pharisees have it all wrong. They're barking up the wrong religious tree. It's not external stuff that defiles, meaning that religion is about externals and laws and rules. It's actually what defiles comes out of a broken, fallen human heart, and that's where the action needs to take place. That's where the focus needs to be. I began this sermon this morning uh, sharing a couple of stories of people who had belonged to Christian groups, denominations, churches, Christian sects, that focused very much on laws and regulations and, and rules and, and, and guidelines regarding who you could break bed, bread with and who you couldn't and all that kind of stuff. And I remember finding it odd then when I was younger and I was first facing it, and I still find it really odd now. And I find it odd because I wonder how, how can people who have the New Testament who have the teachings of Jesus, including a passage like we've just studied together, and still conclude that actually, faith is all about this kind of rules and all about not staining ourselves from other people. How can you read the New Testament and conclude that? But people do. And I get it, people can read scripture with blinders on, they don't always see what they wanna, they only see what they wanna see perhaps. Uh, I do believe there are things like religious spirits that can uh, influence people and keep people bound. But it's so sad that, I would, that people who, who probably legitimately love Jesus conclude that following him is about laws and rules and toe in the line. And they're missing the freedom and the grace and the joy and the blessing and the spirit and being free of the deep heart things that they're probably struggling with, the, the, the stuff that really needs attention. But before we go and point at others, we always have to ask ourselves, Is there any of that in us? Are there evangelical do's and don'ts? I can think of a few. There certainly have been, and they probably still uh, linger around. There are externals that get more attention than they should. And I want you to hear me on this. I'm I'm not saying that there aren't certain things that we shouldn't engage in. I'm not saying we we should have an all-goes kind of liberalism. I can do anything I want, I can do this, I can do that, because at the end of the day, it's not about what I do. It's all about me and Jesus and how I treat other people. Um, No, I think we should avoid certain practices and there are certain boundaries we create that we shouldn't cross, absolutely. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there are certain rules and regulations, however, that we build and we create that don't contradict Scripture, but we create them as part of our Christian culture. That They then develop into the system of purity and righteousness, and and even though we wouldn't necessarily disengage with other believers, we can end up thinking, well, you're a good Christian if you do this, but you're not so good if you do that. You're a good Christian if you do this, but if you break them, you're not. Keep keep them and you'll please God. Break them and God will be angry with you, and it becomes a work-based righteousness, and we add that kind of stuff because we're bent towards religion, and we find grace hard. And worse, people on the outside can then become shunned, judged, look down upon, put up a barrier. So before we go to communion, I'd like to mention two things for us to take away. Do you this morning need to uh, return to, and maybe it's just a slight course correction, to the purity of the gospel message? to get beyond rules and laws and focus on Christ and your invitation to him to come into the heart and do some deep, profound heart surgery. Weed out those things that truly defile. Have you spent too much time focusing on externals as a way of smoke screening and diverting attention away from what's going on in here? Things you don't want to address, the secrets you have, the things you don't want people to know. Because sometimes we do that. Sometimes we create laws to keep as a way of diverting away from what's going on inside. Let me tell you this the heart surgery that God wants to do in all of us is not to expose us and it's not to condemn us, it's actually to free us. It's actually to free us. And secondly, in the very next passage that is going to be preached on next Sunday, Jesus is going to continue to cross boundaries that the Pharisees would never have crossed as he interacts with a pagan Syrophoenician woman. Uh, It's really interesting that it comes right after this passage. Someone deemed unclean. And I guess my question for us is, are there types of people or individuals that you work with um, that you uh, live next door to or, or whatever it is, um, perhaps you go to school with, that you avoid because you deem them unclean. And maybe you wouldn't use that language, but maybe you think they're so far from God or too far from God that they probably would never turn to Him and never be granted grace. Jesus always steps over boundaries. He always radiates love and offers a way back. So a question for us to linger on is, are there boundaries I'm being called to cross? Good boundaries. Amen. Uh, If you didn't have a chance to to, to take a communion um, uh, elements here, uh, there are some, I believe, just out in the lobby there. I think there should be some up in the balcony for you. So uh, make sure you get one of those. And we're going to go to communion now. And probably most of you are pretty um, dialed in on how we do this by now, but just in case as a visitor, um, let me just let you know there's two layers that you peel back, the top see-through layer, and it reveals this, this wonderful, tasty wafer, this gastronomic delight. And um, then just be careful as you gently pull back the pink foil so that you don't spill uh, the juice on you. So that's that's how we do it. So what we're going to do, friends, is I just talked about the purity of God, the gospel, the, the, the central truth of the gospel. And the reason we do communion on a regular basis, well, we do it monthly. Uh, the reason we do it on a regular basis is because we need to remind ourselves over and over about the center. What's the most important thing? Because we can end up with rules and laws and do's and don'ts and things we even just place on ourselves. I must do this. I must do that. I mustn't. Oh, I failed again. Oh, shoot. Aren't I terrible? Like we all do that kind of stuff. And we need to come back to the table and remember what it's all about. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his body and his blood. And so we're coming back again to center ourselves around Jesus this morning. (laughs) So I'm going to read from the Apostle Paul. I received from the Lord what I handed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he gave him thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So all you who know him, let's eat together. same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The blood of Christ shed for you. Let's drink together. Lord Jesus, we bow our hearts before you and we do so with such thankfulness for the cross, for your body and your blood, your sacrifice on our behalf. And I just want to pray this morning if there's anybody in the room for whom resonated with some of the stuff that we touched on here um, and, and it's so easy for us to drift into religiosity sometimes. I pray that you'd help uh, them, all of us, to reattach ourselves once again in our mind and hearts to the body and the blood of Jesus as we've ingested elements. May we eat of you, Lord, and drink of you, take you in again, deep within ourselves. May you take up the throne room of our hearts again this morning. And for those of us for whom... As we said earlier, blessing the Lord was difficult today because we're we're weighted under shame or guilt. I just wanna proclaim in the name of Jesus freedom to you. I just wanna say you're free, be free. Jesus loves you, God loves you, he forgives you, he cleanses you. And blessing the Lord is a response to that truth that it wells up within you to want to bless him and to honor him and to glorify him. You are not excluded from entering into blessing the Lord because of anything you've done. Parents, you're free. You're forgiven. You're loved. In Jesus' name, amen.